This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 158 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most prolific and acclaimed content creators working in television today. The primary force behind two funny, smart, and edgy comedy series currently streaming on Amazon, Transparent and I Love Dick, and the winner for the former of the last two Best Director of a Comedy Series Emmys, Jill Soloway. The 51-year-old, who recently came out as gender non-binary and prefers singular they pronouns, has been working in the business for decades. For most of that time, they toiled more or less contentedly under the radar as a TV writer on programs like The Steve Harvey Show, Six Feet Under, Grey's Anatomy, and United States of Tara. But a few years ago, partly by their choice and partly out of necessity, they began working for themselves, first on a 2011 short, Una Ora Por Favor, that got into Sundance, then on a 2012 feature, Afternoon Delight, that also got into Sundance and was awarded the Fest's Best Director Prize, and then on Transparent, a show about an L.A.-area family that is rocked when the 70-something person long known to the adult children as their father comes out as transgender, as happened with the person Soloway grew up knowing as her father, but now calls Mapa or Parent. Soloway not only created Transparent, but serves as its executive producer with Andrea Sperling and as a frequent writer and director of its episodes. The first two seasons of the show received Best Comedy Series Emmy nominations, and the third season dropped last September 23rd and is Emmy eligible right now. In the middle of its run, Soloway also co-created with Sarah Gubbins' I Love Dick, a show about a female filmmaker who becomes infatuated with the artist sponsoring her husband's research fellowship. Soloway is an executive producer of the show, with Gubbins and others, and directed the first and fifth episodes of its first season, which dropped on May 12th. Over the course of our conversation in the living room of their home in Silver Lake, Soloway and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a kid from Chicago wound up in L.A. enjoying both the pleasures and pains of life as a TV writer, how a crisis prompted them to take a gamble, quite literally, and venture into making films, how Afternoon Delight served as a prototype for Transparent, and how Katherine Hahn came to star in both, as well as I Love Dick, the evolution of their gender, particularly over the years since Transparent went out into the world, and the impact that it has had on their life and loved ones, plus much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
Jill, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. And before we get down to business, I wonder if you can just set the scene of where we are because you and actually, I guess, a lot of indie content creators are very associated with this place geographically. So maybe you can... The neighborhood? Yes. Silver Lake? Yes. Yeah, well, we're in the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles. And I think it, I guess it would be considered like the Brooklyn of LA. Yeah. You find your artists, your hipsters, (laughs) your queers, your men with beards, your coffee drinkers. How long have you been based here? Your matcha drinkers. Right. (laughs) I have probably been here about 10 years. So we always begin just What's the basics? Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Chicago, and my mother is a PR person. She was into PR, and my parent, who I refer to as Mappa, who was previously known as my dad, was a psychiatrist. And was TV a big part of your childhood? Did you watch a lot? Did any particularly influence you? Oh, yeah. It was huge. I mean... We basically, my sister and I watched TV all the time, and I think when we were little kids, it was, you know, sort of Saturday morning cartoons, and very quickly, I think my first real obsession was the Brady Bunch. <laughs> I was totally obsessed with yeah. that television show. My sister and I memorized basically every episode. We used right. to play a game at night before we fell asleep of one person would say a, a line from a Brady Bunch episode, and the other person had to name the episode. <laughs> and from there, we became obsessed with my mom with all the Jim Brooks shows. So it was Rhoda, Mary Tyler Moore, Phyllis, Bob Newhart. That was just like a kind of family mantra, watching those shows and that sense of humor. Well, in, in preparing for this, I came across one profile in which you also said that there was this sort of side interest, which I'm kind of curious about, where you were saying... that. The, beauty pageants, love boat, fantasy island on the side. It's not that you necessarily were enraptured with what they were showing as far as entertainment, but it was just a curiosity, basically. Well, yeah, we loved beauty pageants. I was really, when Miss America or Miss USA would come on, we would take it very, very seriously. We would get our (laughs) yellow legal pads out and, you know, write down all the states before it started. And then during the parade of states, you know, give them a number, (laughs) seven, eight, nine, ten, three, you know, whatever. And then my sister and I would pick our top ten finalists. And then we would see how they compared with the actual ten finalists. So we took beauty pageants very seriously. And, yeah, obviously it was confusing. I mean, I think it's very confusing to be a little girl and watching beauty pageants and trying to figure out how you fit in and what this means about women and bodies, you know, being sort of graded on how they look and participating in that grading, not even knowing why I was doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's probably similar to little boys watching sports, but it doesn't feel quite as, I think, as imprisoning, I think, as the standards of beauty do. I think a lot of boys can watch football or basketball and think, I'm going to grow up to be like that and think of that as a powerful thought because the athletes look powerful. To be a little girl and to be looking at beauty pageants, what I think you're being forced to dream about is a kind of like very small, very demure, very skinny, very perfect version of yourself. And I think that actually did a lot of damage. And then, yeah, Fantasy Island Love Boat, same thing. <laughs> yeah. Obsessed. Couldn't get a Charlie's <laughs> Angels and Bionic Woman. Right. $6 million man, you know. It was a certain kind of a show, a certain kind of a hairdo, certain kind of gender politics that we didn't question, just assumed were what the world was about. And yeah, obsessed. So what sort of a kid were you? If we were to talk to your classmates from 
elementary and junior high and whatever, would they say, you know, Jill was the cool kid, Jill was the nerdy kid? What what would it what would you have been described as? I don't think I was ever cool. I think because my sister Faith and I had a lot of creative energy. We were probably like the kids who were creative. Like yeah. my sister and I were always making up plays and we would have friends over and Faith would always be on the piano and we would all be singing and just kind of cracking each other up. So I think creative maybe. I think I was probably a little bit weird <laughs> in some areas of my life to some kids, but I didn't really identify that way. Right. And yeah, I never felt popular. I think it was always like just to the left of something. Eventually, you go off to University of Wisconsin-Madison, right? And what was the outlook at that point? You're you're thinking what for the long term? Well, it's weird because I remember doing this Hail Mary college application to Madison. Mm -hmm. I had gotten into another school, Michigan State, and I went to visit Michigan State. And it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, this looks great. (laughs) I'm going to have fun here in East Lansing. (laughs) And suddenly started to like get the feeling like that this was the wrong college. I didn't want to go to Michigan State and I really wanted to go to Madison. And so I wrote this from the heart letter that went with my application. And I remember in it that I said something about it being my vision for myself to be a translator between the world of some sort of complex academic ideas and mainstream media. Wow. That's was, pretty pregnant. I know. I, I knew I wanted to do that because I had been learning about feminism and I didn't really understand how to square it with popular culture. And I felt that I would be able to take complex ideas and boil them down into popular ideas. Now, you say you'd been reading about feminism. How did that not everybody goes into college having already considered those kinds of ideas, you know, anything on that level of depth? There's, yeah. Where did that start? I don't know if it was Feminism, as much as it, was, as it was social justice, my mom was an activist. She was into, you know, trying to get the ERA passed. And, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in was a mostly African-American neighborhood. And so there was constant talk of the civil rights movement. You know, I have like a big memory of like a bicentennial parade where the Black Panthers were there. So there was very much a feeling in the neighborhood that we were all involved in the project of social justice. So I think when I applied to college, it was more like making the world a better place in general. And when I got out of college, the idea of being that kind of a translator where I could take complex ideas and make them simple, for some reason, I just applied them to the world of advertising. Like when I got out of college, I just wanted to be an advertiser. And you'd had a degree in Radio, TV, and film. Radio, TV, and film. Okay. Communications. So even pursuing that, though, you were not thinking the best case scenario is I can be maybe, maybe I'll have my own TV show was... Know that people, I didn't know to dream that. <laughs> right, I should have. Right, right. Being such a TV fan, I mean, obviously, like I knew who Sherwood Schwartz was and Norman Lear right. and Jim Brooks, and I was obsessed with Woody Allen mm-hmm. and Albert Brooks. And I don't know if it had to do with gender, where I didn't see any women in that role. So it just kind of didn't occur to me to be those people. It just, it just didn't occur to me. Yeah. I was thinking more along the lines of advertising and. I guess news, yeah. you know, because when you're in communication arts, that's kind of like, I was thinking more about sort of more commercial stuff. Was the first job actually in advertising? Yeah, I worked in an ad agency in Chicago and I had a great time producing TV commercials. But as I got to know some of the people on the crews, I realized that I wanted to be on the production side. So I became a production assistant and worked on commercials and music videos in Chicago. And while there I met a sound man named Jerry Blumenthal. He has since passed away, but 
He was one of the founders of a documentary production company in Chicago called Cartemquin. Oh, with and, Steve James, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Are you from Chicago? No, but I love Steve James. Steve? Yeah. Yeah. Cartemquin. yeah. Yeah. So they were making hoop dreams at the time. You and, worked on that? Yeah, I was a PA on hoop oh, dreams. Oh my God. Yeah. It's maybe the greatest documentary I of know. all time. It's I know. amazing. I was very lucky. So I kind of just moved into that. And it was through working with the people at Cartemquin that I think I started to get an understanding of the interface between art and filmmaking. And at what point did you say maybe I should move out to L.A.? It still didn't quite work that way. So I was thinking about what kind of documentary I wanted to make, if I was ever going to make one. And again, the idea of the Brady Bunch popped up. I was like thinking about making a documentary about the Brady Bunch. Like where are they now or something? It was sort of like I was really interested in their what it felt like to be that kind of famous. You know, what it felt like to be eve plum but to have people see jan brady mm-hmm. and the difference between who she was and what people saw i was just really interested in it's again it. interesting because sort of how the world sees you versus yeah. how anyway but similar themes yeah that was the initial idea but where did well and so instead of doing a documentary my sister and i just did a play we did a okay. stage play version called the real life brady bunch okay. where we took a bunch of our friends and we literally just acted out brady bunch episodes <laughs> and all of our friends were like the people of chicago who right. was like you know it was a burgeoning comedy scene right. so just by sort of picking people who were around we had jane lynch and andy richter in our cast and steve carell and did you ever consider doing what some of them were doing which i guess would have been second city or yeah we were sort of like happening at the same time as second city we were like adjacent to second city a lot of people at the annoyance theater were also part of second city my sister played piano at second city so you were less though interested in going purely the comedy route yeah well second city had a pretty specific form which was sketches right and then they would do the improv afterwards. And I was at this theater called the Annoyance Theater. It was run by Mick Napier. And what he was doing were more plays, original plays created through improvisation that had, I think, a much more queer, wild, you know, fucked up, freaked out sensibility than what was going on at Second City at the time. And I guess just since you mentioned some of that sensibility, you yourself at that time, coming up through college into these early years out in the real world, how did you identify yourself in a gender romantic all any way I was just kind of regular straight person yeah yeah I didn't have any questions about my gender identity or my sexuality I was just like regular old straight girl right yeah my sister was the lesbian oh she was yeah so So we were just making art together and we were part of that world right yeah I didn't I myself wasn't really in any kind of questioning mode right so back to how do we how do we end up in LA okay so we made the real life Brady Bunch play and suddenly It was this gigantic success. It was. All kinds of people came. Like the week after, you know, we had our opening night, and then the next week we went to the theater to do the show, and we were coming down the street in a taxi cab, and it was just like packed with people on the street. And we were like, I wonder if there was a bomb scare somewhere. (laughs) Why are all these people on the corner of, you know, Belmont and Broadway? How are we going to get to the theater? What if people can't get to the theater? And we got out of the cab and we realized that they were all lined up to see our play. How big a house were you doing it in? Well, we had like, maybe we could fit 100 people. And there were probably like four or 500 people on the, on the streets. So what do you do? I mean, we just went up on the roof and we looked at all the people and we kind of freaked out. Right. We couldn't figure it out. We added a second show. <laughs> <laughs> we had tickets go on sale at 12 noon instead of at night. Right. There were still tons of people lined up around the block, but like it just like it was one of those things where it was just like a phenomenon immediately. 
you know, people were sending their secretaries down to the theater at noon to wait in yeah. line to get tickets. You know, this was pre-internet, so. And are people now, for the first time, I guess, starting to talk about Jill Soloway? Who is this person? Yeah, it was kind of the it... Soloway sisters. Yeah. Faith and I started to get a profile. We started to get a lot of, like, famous people were coming to see the Brady Bunch. Like, one week Madonna was in the audience. Oh and the God. next week Tom Hanks was there. And, wow. You know, the actual cast of the Brady Bunch started coming and... Oh, my God. You know, it was amazing. It was a dream come true. I think I was 25. Are one of those people trying to recruit you to work on something with them? Not quite. No, what happened was a producer named Ron Delsner from New York came to the show and took us on a tour. Oh, first took us to New York. We went to New York and we played at the Village Gate for a year. Okay, for a year? Wow. Yeah. Then we came out here and we played at the Westwood Playhouse for a year. And it was the same thing, just like more and more crowds, more and more people. You know, this, this experience of transparent, of like, oh my God, something's happening, we're on this ride. It reminds me of what that felt like because it was a family feeling. It right. was my sister, it was all our friends, and we were making something, you know, and right. the world was noticing. So when did a TV-specific job first emerge as a possibility? So we went to New York and L.A., and then we went on tour, and then came back here to L.A., and I think I was probably, like, in my mid-20s. 26 or 27 years old, hanging around, trying to figure out what to do. And we had gotten agents. My sister and I got agents. Some agents from CAA came out to the show in New York, and they signed us. Wow. So, you know, this is like for the business. It was, you know, Mike Rosenfeld, Sonia Rosenfeld, Joe Cohen, Jeff Jacobs, who were all in their 20s. Wow. They were kids. And we were kids. And they came and signed us. And, you know. Suddenly, Faith and I had agents at CAA. And what were they saying to you as far as what they could do? There, or were they, was the idea that, hey, you know, it's great to do live content, but it's time to, you know, you want to start making some yeah. money or whatever, come work in TV? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was sort of that. It was like, yeah. how do you work on a TV show? You have to write a spec script. Strangely, the spec script I wrote was Larry Sanders, and it was a Hank Kingsley story. Oh, my God. It's so weird. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, in fact, I just found it. That's amazing. It's called for, like, For God, Love, and Lotion, and it's a whole story about Hank Kingsley trying to sell everybody lotion <laughs> for, like, a multi-level marketing <laughs> thing that he's into. And so did that ever... Did you? No, I never sent that to Larry Sanders. It. No, it was just my spec, and right. that actually got me hired on a show called The Steve Harvey Show. Yes. It was being run by Winifred Hervey. It was my first TV writing job. It was around the same time I got pregnant with my son, who's now 20. Wow. And so, yeah, first writer's room, pregnant, getting serious about making money, trying to write jokes, live tapings, you know, Thursday nights, whatever it is, learning all this, learning everything about and TV. And you were enjoying it? Loved it. So fun. So maybe you can explain for, for people who are listening who aren't in the business just how the life of a TV writer works at a time before you now have your own shows and things going. So... You were doing the Steve Harvey show, and then over the next few years, you were working on Six Feet Under, The United States of Tara, Grey's Anatomy, a lot of these other shows. Is it basically just, like, how do you plan your life? Uh, A show itself is not always guaranteed beyond a very short period. So how are you supposed to go about your life? Well, you just think about it. You know, you have your career, and there's a very specific kind of order of things that happens as a writer. There are these titles, and I like to sort of describe them as sort of like getting swimming patches when you're at camp. You know, like you go to camp, and you're like, you go minnow, goldfish, (laughs) dolphin, shark. You know, you go up each. So it's very much like that. You know, the, the order is staff writer, 
story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer. Is producer. that recognized across All TV networks? Shows. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so that respect. It it's not like you your show gets canceled or whatever. You go backwards. Well, some writers do. You yeah. know, some that that that's a part of the negotiation. Is like if you're if a lot of people want you, you ask to jump a level. If nobody will take you, you'll go back one. Mm-hmm. But this it's it gives you a kind of pretty straightforward path where you're not just like flailing around, but you know, like that you want to move up in title at least every year or every two years. So with some of these shows that I mentioned, which ones represented these incremental incentives? Well, so up? I was a staff writer on Steve Harvey show, and then from there I went to a show called The Baby Blues, Nikki, and Oblongs. I was probably a story editor or executive story editor. And then I think, yeah, by the time I went to Six Feet Under, I bet that was my first like co-producer job probably. And that was Maybe a producer. big show for big, HBO, yeah. of course. As your responsibility and titles and everything with these things increase, does it feel better or worse? Because obviously a lot more is riding on your contributions, but I'm yeah. sure you're getting better compensated, but you know, there's trade-offs. So how did you feel? Yeah, I don't I don't mind pressure being put on me to be creative. It's very easy for me to be creative. In fact, it's harder for me not to be creative. Wow. I have like so many ideas yeah. that I'm always just trying to kind of not think of new things, which is a strange feeling to realize, (laughs) you know, that like, it's very natural for me to write story and to find story and to think in terms of plot and to generate, you know, so that part of it is very, is very natural. So yeah, no, it was great. I mean, Alan Ball had a lot of faith in me as a writer. And I felt like it was the first time that I had faith in myself as a writer, and that I was really aware that the writing in and of itself meant something, you know, that it wasn't just my hustle and it wasn't just my personality. It was like actually that I could do something that was worth something. Was it any less satisfying to, to be writing to fulfill someone else's concept as opposed to what you now get to do, which is kind of propel your own vision forward? Yeah, well, Alan Ball was cool enough that we were all really putting our own visions into Six Feet Under. Okay. So I felt like... I was writing from my heart, especially when I was writing Claire and, you know, Brenda and even the guy characters. And, you know, I really could feel my own soul in this in the characters and loved writing on that show. And, yeah, I, I of course, dreamed of having my own show, but I certainly felt while I was working on that show and others that I got to put my own creativity into it. In past interviews, you've said that there were some people who regarded you as, quote unquote, difficult. Mm -hmm. And here's another quote. The TV world sees me as someone who should be kept in a pen in the basement with Penny Marshall and Nancy Myers and a few women who have passed away. Close quote. What did you mean by that? And why would people have seen you in that way? It's funny. I mean, I think it was more like it's really more about the sort of way in which you live in a patriarchal world so you see yourself through these kinds of like men's eyes and particularly like whoever's in charge of the thing at the time so tv appeared to me to be this thing that like young kind of up-and-coming dudes were running so it was like would be the guys of the networks or even the girls of the networks who love these kinds of like wonder kind young guys who would be like the flavor of the month. (laughs) And I think at the time that I said that, I felt like I had passed my flavor of the month possibilities because I was getting older. So maybe I was like in my 40s when I said that. And, you know, there's just a feeling in writers rooms, you know, where they'll put people together and it'll be like a bunch of guys, right? And all the guys are the same. They're all cute. They're all Jewish. (laughs) They all went to Yale or Harvard. And then you have your couple of Here's your outliers. Or yeah, whatever. here's yeah. the cute girl. Right. Here's the older woman, and here's our person of color. 
Are we done? You know, that's the kind of way that writers it was were. or still is. No, well, was. Okay. I don't really know how it is because right. I don't have to do it anymore. Own, right. So I felt like, yeah, I was becoming like the older woman who could be brought in because of my like yeoman years of work. To that point, if I can just, I don't mean to interrupt, but I want people to note that you were on certain shows, you were like the the specialist who literally was brought in to help, right? With, for instance, I saw that with How to Make It in America and Looking yeah. and things. What would be the reason someone would recruit Jill Soloway to help get something going? You know, a lot of people will sort of hand a show to somebody with a great idea or somebody who's got that ability to be the brand at the center of a hip, cool show. So that would have been like Ian Edelman on How to Make It in America, Diablo Cody on United States of Terra, Andrew Haig on Looking, people who were filmmakers, people who were like beloved by the network, but who had never made a TV show before. And because I have like a very specific process that I learned from Alan Ball and I just knew how to do it. You know, you put the grid up on the, you could put the grid up and you're, and you break the characters journeys for the season. Then you break those into episodes. They would, you know, they would give me to writers to teach them how to do it. And it's funny. So I even like ran into Nick Hall recently who used to work at HBO and who now works at Amazon. And he was like, nobody does a board, like nobody does a season (laughs) pitch like you. The way that you do a board, nobody else does. Like, cause you know, I'm just. Was that satisfying to be the doctor on some of these projects that, you know, you you may not remain, it sounds like with them for very long, but you are the reason that they were able to get up and running. Yeah, no, it's fun. I mean, there's nothing more fun than the writer's room. It's it's a it's it's a way of socializing with very intense boundaries because you're at work and you know what time you come and what time you go and there are breaks and there's food, but like you're really expected to have fun and laugh and be the funniest and everybody's trying to be the funniest and you just crack up, yeah. you know, the whole time. There's really nothing better than the environment of a writer's room. What was it that led you to do a short film, which I believe was called Una Ora Por Favor, which then gets into Sundance. What was that about? And then what happened in Park City, from what I've read, that sort of focused you on doing the next thing? Yes. So what happened? Well, I think, you know, like the more that I have these moments now where I'm looking back at my career, I realize that like I would, I would grow and then I would encounter these moments where I would feel like stuck by my growth. You know, and I think I change very quickly and I move very quickly. And I think I have a sort of like iterative personality, you know, mm-hmm. like an app, <laughs> like, an, like an app developer, you know, like right. a developing app where I'm like, OK, I'm trying this now and I'm trying this right. now. And I feel very comfortable moving. I guess I got into a place where I was working on United States of Terra and I was that sort of like other person who was helping. And I felt my head against the ceiling. I just kind of couldn't get my own show on the air. And kept thinking things were going to happen, and they weren't. Why do you think you were getting resistance to getting your own show I on the air? I do not know. It just wasn't the time. You know, this was like pre-Lena Dunham, pre-Mindy Kaling, pre-Tina Fey, pre-Broad City. You know, people did not like weird girls. They did not like gross girls. They did not like strange women. And those yeah. were the things you would be pitching? Yes. That, I was still writing the same stuff I'm writing now. You know, <laughs> I've always been the same person. Okay. And you would never adapt what you wanted to write in order to get that job? I, I tried. That didn't really work either. Yeah, it just, it just doesn't work. You could try. So you go and do a short. So, well, what happened was actually, so around the time that we're talking about was around the time of the writer strike. And you know how everybody sort of figures they're going to do a little better and a little better each year. And they, and they assume like, oh, I have to pay a lot of taxes. I'll do a little better next year. I'll be able to pay this year's taxes. Mm-hmm. But the writer strike just like gutted me. We just... 
my savings were gone. I got behind in taxes. I was pretty desperate financially. Even though I had been somewhat successful, I just hadn't taken care of my money well. how long was the strike? How long did it last? I can't remember. It was like months It seemed like forever. And it was also the recession. Right. So suddenly we were in a moment where there was a lot less work. The money I'd saved was gone. I went on a bunch of meetings to kind of do the same thing. You know, like be the old lady in the room. (laughs) And I just couldn't get hired. I just could not get a job. You know, I couldn't land one of these you know it was like staffing season Mm -hmm. which is something i don't participate in anymore Mm -hmm. but you know every year it was awful (laughs) it's like sorority rush right but worse right and everybody's talking and and you're going on these meetings and you're waiting to hear about pickups and and you know you're hoping you go meet somebody and they say they're going to give you a job on their show and then you hear some gossip that they got a plane ticket to new york which means that they're going out for upfronts which means it's getting picked up (laughs) You have your show, but then somebody else makes you an offer. There's a clock on the offer. You know, it's just a really straight. It's right. like it's like you know that kind of draft season. It's just blech, <laughs> so hard. So I was going around to all of the people who had shows and kind of begging, mm-hmm. begging for jobs. Mm-hmm. I remember begging for one on Two Broke Girls. Michael Patrick King saying no, and me writing him a really really long email begging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like wow, I really did that, and. I had sort of, then there was like one last possibility. They were looking for somebody on Glee. And it was like that sort of like, there's another golden ticket moment for Charlie and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I was like, yes, I'm going to go work on Glee. And I like <laughs> watched five seasons and I came up with a bunch of episode ideas. And I went and met the guys on Glee and had a great meeting. It was just fantastic, you know, such a good vibe. It was at Paramount got in my car and called my agent he's like they loved you they just you just need to go meet ryan he's on the set of american horror story we're gonna set up a meeting with him and i was like fantastic (laughs) then i got another phone call you don't need to meet ryan he loves you the offer's coming you can pop the champagne and you know still living here in this house but like literally no money you know eating what's in our cabinets Mm -hmm. like no restaurants like it was really tight it was there and popped the champagne, totally celebrated, like I had a job, you know, we were going to be okay. And then over the next couple of days, the offer didn't come in. And the offer didn't come in. And the offer still didn't come in. And I called my agent. I'm like, is the offer coming? He's like, oh, you have nothing to worry about. We don't chase offers. It's fine. I don't, I'm not going to call them. But each day passed and the offer still didn't come. And then finally, my agent called me and he said, the offer's not coming. Jesus. They asked around about you. Word is on the street, you're difficult. Oh. So how do you, what do you even say to that? What do you do? I literally just started sobbing. Yeah. I was so upset. And I was like, you guys, I'm broke. You can't, I can't, I can't, I don't know what to do. I have no money. And Jay and Larry were the two agents on the phone. And Jay said, I'll write you a check right now. How much do you need? I think it was like $25,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he messengered the check over. Wow. I had it the next day. And I said to my husband, I don't ever want to be in this position again. Mm-hmm. I want to use this money to make a movie. And what did he... He was he like, say? okay. Not, yeah. No resistance to that idea? <laughs> I mean, you guys... No, I said, I have to double down on me. I have to bet on myself. I have to. It's the only way out. And that went into the short... I made Una Ora Porfacora. Okay, so that short, just so people... 
follow this correctly, and I want to make sure I'm giving correct information here. Yeah. He gets into Sundance, which itself is a... What year is that? 2000... That's the year before Afternoon Delight, so 2012, 2012, think, okay. Right? So you go there with 2012, you have your... Which... Yeah, except for that, when I got the phone call that Una Ora had gotten into Sundance, yes. which would have been in the end of 2011, right? because Sundance was 2012 in January, about four days later, my parent called me and came out as trans. Four days after you get this great news, now you're... Yes, because I, I remember taking it very personally and being like, I'm going to Sundance as a director. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> and and you know what? Just since that's such a, a huge moment in, in your Mappa's life, but certainly also in yours, that has changed a lot of things since then. Can I ask you to just recount if it's OK with you? Like, how did that conversation go? We've se- we see that conversation in Transparent, right. but I don't know how much of that is based on your own. Well, this was a conversation on the phone. It, you were informed yeah. on the phone? Yeah, yeah. Sitting right there in the kitchen, yeah. Just, just talking on the phone. So I think it was a pretty overwhelming moment. I definitely was present and loving on the phone call and really trying to offer my parent the kind of response that anybody would want from their family. I was thinking like of them as a child who was coming out as gay. And if I was their parent, you know, what would you say? And even though it was the other way around and it was trans, not gay, I was just like, I love you. You're so brave. Thank you for telling me. You had no indication up to that? No. You had not even a hint of suspicion. Amazing. And why was it done over the telephone? I don't know. I think it was just time. Yeah. You know. Because... Your it was their moment in their life. Yeah, she was in the, Chicago. Okay, and so that, well, that explains. Yeah. It was, yeah, she was in Chicago and she was ready. So what do you do with that information? So I, there was a part of me, even during that phone call, where I knew I was going to write a TV show about it. Like During the call? Yeah, it was like kind of way too soon. It was like my usual response, like pain, turn it into creativity. Anxiety becomes creativity. So that was already kind of happening in the back of my head. But with all of the sort of tumult of... This family, my family I come from, my mother, my sister, all of us kind of trying to figure out what was going on because Mm -hmm. it was kind of shocking. Not only the news about the future, but trying to put together the pieces of your past. Like, well, who were we then and what was our family if this this was going on the whole time? I went to Sundance with my film and had a great experience, like feeling like a director for the first time. One of the things that I say is like after my parent came out as trans, I was ready to come out as a director. Like I grabbed that identity of that laminate around my neck at Sundance, you know, taking that bus ride up to the Institute to meet Robert Redford, meeting the other filmmakers and being like, yes, I'm a director, you know, just feeling like I was the person I wanted to be finally. And that really coincided with my parent coming out. And so when I was at Sundance, I think I was probably in a little bit of like a fugue of trying not to really face my real life. And I was also, you know, as I mentioned, transforming that into ambition. And I went to see, I met a lot of other directors. I went to see a lot of features and pretty quickly got the feeling of like, oh, having a short here isn't enough. I need a feature. And was at a movie at Sundance that I was watching where I was like, I know I could do better than this. <laughs> I can't believe this movie got into Sundance. Right. I know I can do better. And I literally walked out of the movie 
it was in this like giant theater called Eccles at Sundance. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been there to Sundance? You know what yeah. Eccles is? Yeah. Eccles is like, it has that long row yeah. in the middle with like 200 seats yeah. and you can't get out. <laughs> and I like walked out of that theater and went back to my condo and got this screenplay out. At the time it was called Father's Day actually, but I renamed it Afternoon Delight. And it was about a relationship between a woman and a stripper. And You I, had brought it to Sundance? It was just on my computer. Okay, I see. You know, it was like, you know how you write like the first 30 pages? Yeah. Then you write the next 10 pages. Right. Now you can get to the act break and then you start going into the second act and then you're like, mm. You poop out, yeah. 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 So it was sort of there. And I was like, I know I can. I, I just kept trying to imagine just that the script didn't have to be perfect, but I could use it as a shape to improvise with my friends and get something. Had you like, ever done a film no. Worked on a script, film script or anything? Is it, I mean, this I had like, sold some movies. Oh, yeah. I had sold some movies that hadn't gotten made. Okay. And I had gotten close with a few different producers who did believe that I could direct, but I had never actually really made anything. So, yeah, there was a movie that I was going to direct that was going to be produced by Mark Platt, and there were like moments where different actors were attached, and yeah, I've, I had moments that felt close, but nothing ever happened. Things yeah. kept falling apart. I guess we should just to connect back one dot when you. Got the $25,000 from your agent because you were short on funds at home, yeah. but you didn't put it towards stuff at home. Yeah, I think it was just more credit cards, more debt. When did the agent realize that it had gone towards a short film? I think that they were fine with that, actually. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think Larry still tells that story to people. <laughs> but it wasn't like an upfront, like, hey, I'm actually going to need this twenty five to make a short. Yes, I didn't say that. No, I said I have to pay my bills. <laughs> I don't know what we did. You know, maybe some piece of money came in that I was waiting for and I was okay. Like some, oh, that's when I was working on looking. Okay. So you were doctoring Yeah, I was still that, doing basically. TV writing and I, and, and, and I was working on looking at that point. Okay. So you're going to put the 25000 towards a short, but shorts, they don't sell tickets. So what was, yeah. what was that going to do for you? That I was going to be a director and I'd be able to direct so TV. So you knew it was a stepping stone a to a feature. Yeah. Because I had tried to direct on Six Feet Under and I had asked to direct on How to right. Make It in America and, and I was... As I was going up for writing jobs now, I was saying to people, I'll write if I can direct. And people were saying no. So I knew that directing was my next. You could control your own destiny a little bit more. If I had something great, yeah. So you come back from Sundance where you not only had the thing with your short going over, but you finished picked up your script. Oh, you finished yeah. it at Sundance. Right. Sort it got close. Yeah. Okay. Came back and finished it here. And I, and, I, and I remember like coming out of that movie that I walked out of and saying to a friend of mine, a writer named Harris Dano, I said, I'm going to be back here next year with a feature. He's like, okay. <laughs> and I came back. I finished the feature a few weeks later. And, you know, I knew, like, so this was January, and I kn- knew that to be back the following year, you have to be able to have, like, at least a rough cut to submit mm-hmm. in September or October. October. So I think by, like, February, I had finished the script and gave it to my agents to send out to some producers and was down at the farmer's market in Silver Lake and ran into a producer I had once met named Polly. And I said, I wrote a movie. I'm going to make it this summer. And she said, oh, Sebastian and Jen are producers. They're looking for a script. And so, like, it totally happened because I happened to go to the farmer's market. Amazing. Well, didn't yeah. something else, didn't you have another meeting at the farmer's market that... Oh, that Catherine Hahn? Yeah. Oh, I'd seen her at the farmer's market. Yeah. A few, yeah. And it turns out Everything. she was, like, your, your yeah, neighbor? Yeah, I loved her. Yeah. 
And because that was the beginning of you working with her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything cool happens at the farmer's market. <laughs> the Silver Lake Farmer's Market, for sure. I'll have to check it out. But, yeah. So these so, yeah. guys agreed to make your movie. Yes, and they were agreed to make it quickly. Like, we're going to make it this summer. And they had some money. They got some money. We just started rolling. And we were shooting it, I think, in... We must have been shooting it in June and July. Was that at this house? Because there were some of them. We were going to shoot it at this house. Yeah. But we had we used a different location. Different location. Yeah, but it was definitely Silver Lake, and yeah. So by the t- yeah, come you know, September October, we turned it into Sundance, and you know what happens around Thanksgiving, you get the phone calls, and you got it. Got the phone call, and you know. I mean, I don't really even there. know of too many examples. The only other one that I'm aware of is Whiplash, where they have the short, and a year later they're mm. there with a feature the very next year yeah it's pretty that's intense to that turn it around insane like, yeah, yeah. And, I, and our premiere was back in that same theater that i had walked out of it was in Eccles. <laughs> that's perfect yeah it was amazing. and you win best director and yeah won the best won the directing award so was it because of the heat that was surrounding this which indie movies do not make a fortune very often but this one got a lot of strong responses mm-hmm. people really liked it i remember we did a thing that year with where Catherine we had like a six breakout performers and and she was one it was great to have her but did that directly pave the way for you to now go and pursue this idea that you'd had when you were having the conversation with your mafia when i was making afternoon delight i was pitching it to katherine hahn because i actually originally was going to have her play sarah you were pitching her i'm going to make a show about my parent i want you to play the sister katherine hahn was going to play sarah oh my gosh and I had just met Gabby Hoffman at Sundance right. with that, at Afternoon Delight time, so I want. She was already. She already said she was going to play the other sister, and Catherine was going to play Sarah. And yeah, I, I I started writing the script with those guys in mind, and my agent wanted me to write the whole script rather than pitch it. When you say the whole script, you mean the whole the whole pilot. Okay. You know, normally you would just go pitch it and then get a network to buy. Right. The idea and then you develop it with them he's like just write it so i wrote the pilot he set me up on meetings at all of the usual suspects i was gonna go into hbo showtime fx ifc netflix and have a conversation with them about my parent having transitioned and then when i left larry would send over the pilot already written like that was the plan i didn't have to pitch it was just kind of more personal like hey good to see you because they all, certainly all knew who you I knew were. These, yes, yeah. these are my old friends right. from HBO and from right. Showtime. I've worked. I had worked everywhere, right. you know. So I had great relationships everywhere. But for whatever reason, nobody wanted it. HBO was like, "We're going to need to spend some time developing it. It's, we don't. The script, the script's not quite there." And Showtime wasn't feeling it. And FX was working on a project about a trans person with Ryan Murphy. And Netflix had. Orange is the New Black with Liver and Cox. They felt like they were kind of doing the trans thing. And so, again, it was sort of like another, like, Hail Mary last minute. My agent's like, well, Amazon, you know, they want to meet with you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know about that. You know? (laughs) Were you just in that? Because people have to remember Amazon before Transparent. You would would think that you were going to get, like, a two-day delivery or something if you're going to meet with Amazon. What could that be about even? I couldn't even figure it out. I was like, is it going to be a web series? Right. You know, it couldn't, it didn't occur to me at all to even begin to imagine what has become. But I did have some faith that this idea was enough. And luckily, Amazon made a deal with me where if I wrote the pilot, I could have it back if they didn't want it. 
If I shot the pilot, I could have the footage back if they didn't want it. Because I was going to then take that footage and make another movie. Mm -hmm. Would you make a movie version of this same story? That was my plan. Because normally, if you sell your pilot to somebody, they own it. Right. And so that was very scary. Because I was like, I'm not going to have another parent come out with something crazy. <laughs> this is all I got. Right. I can't just like pitch it and right. give it away. Right. So Amazon agreed that if they didn't want to pick it up as a TV show, I could get the footage back from them to make That's a movie amazing. with it. Yeah. yeah, which is huge. So they did like it. But they did like it. And, and was then, that part of this thing where they, they put up all the perspective pilots yeah, yeah. and people, the public really yeah. got behind it, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Then they order it. You now have to come up with a whole season of stuff, yeah. right? One of the things that I wondered, because at that point you have to staff up, I guess, you, it sounds like, made a concerted decision to work with directors who did not have much experience in television. Why would Why would you do that? Yeah, writers and directors. And directors, yeah. You know, I think it's just, as I said, like a lot of those rooms, a lot of white guys, it was like, I feel like it was important and part of, you know, my duty to make sure that different kinds of people got into the business. I'm writing a show about trans people. I wanted trans people in the writer's room. You know, I'm writing a show about queer people. So I think there's a difference when somebody's making a show about people as opposed to people making a show about themselves and their community. So I, yeah, I just wanted the writer's room and behind the scenes to be filled with people who understood the trans experience and what was if you could say there was a mission for the show obviously people want to entertain but was there anything else was it to educate to enlighten was it to be cathartic for you what was the driving reason for telling this story yeah I kind of had no choice I mean it definitely was to create a safer world that I could live in and my parent could live in where the world would be safer for my mapa to just kind of get in the elevator in their apartment building take a taxi you know, not feel out in the world like they didn't belong. And yeah, I think because of all that worship of shows like Brady Bunch and All in the Family and then even shows like Family is and Eight is Enough and 30-something, you know, I was obsessed with television. I loved shows about families and I dreamed about having my own show. So it just was like the perfect moment. It, everything came together. I had the movie, so I was able to say to the people at Amazon, this is the tone. Look at the movie. I can give you a guarantee of the tone. Because Afternoon Delight was really a model for it. Yeah, and I used the same cinematographer and the same costume designer and production designer and all of my people, you know. I, I worked really hard on Afternoon Delight to make certain things occur, you know, like have the women look a certain way, hair, makeup, not look like women normally look on TV. And so I, like, worked really hard to be very, like, discerning and nuanced about exactly what my tone was. So it's not like overnight, you know. I had made the movie. I was able to show that to Amazon and say, this is the tone. It was a moment where Amazon was ready to take a big risk on programming. And it was a moment when the whole country, if not the world, was really, really interested in trans issues. Because just to remind people of the context that this came into, the only mass exposure to trans people at that point had been what? had So I guess Laverne, Laverne Cox. Yeah. And it was not yet Caitlyn yeah, Jenner. Yeah, pre-Caitlyn anything else that I am forgetting? Not really. I mean, there were trans women on TV shows who were often like victims or villains on procedurals. You could find trans people on daytime talk shows. There was a spectacle yeah, feeling people for didn't the really trans experience, but there weren't any. Just, yeah, and even like the Vern Cox's character was in prison. It was just sort of like, I think it was the first time there was a trans character who was just treated as, you know, part of, part of a family. So how quickly did you realize it was being well-received, making an impact on people. And what do you think now with the benefit of whatever, like three or four years into this all, what do you gauge that impact to have been? 
Yeah, it was pretty obvious right away. You know, it was, we just had the pilot up, but we got great reviews on that pilot. And you could just tell it was working. You know, sometimes when something's working, you can just tell. And it was one of those, one of those things where it was just lifting. And ever since, it's just been a kind of unbelievably delightful awakening of the power of television when it comes to politics. You know, for me to meet people that Transparent has affected, not just as a TV show, but I think Transparent, the heart of Transparent holds a place for people to experience empathy, not only for trans people, but for themselves. It's got like a kind of merciful heart and it holds a way of thinking about life that I think people find very comforting. And that's just such a beautiful feeling when I meet people who feel like they can cozy up in a season of Transparent and they can feel love for these characters even while they feel complex other feelings for these characters, including, you know, hatred and the nonsense of how some of the, some of the people on the show act. There's still <laughs> there's still this kind of like holding of holding of everybody's hearts that I think Transparent delivers. So one of the people who it seems to have changed in in certain ways and just opened up in certain ways is yourself, right? Oh, yes. And so yeah. I I wonder if I can ask a couple of questions and I'm going to try some of these terms and pronouns and things. Yeah. I'm still learning, so I please yeah. pardon me Don't if worry. I screw Get up. Get it wrong. It's all good. But to begin with. Since the beginning of Transparent, what has happened that a woman who was married to a man is now, from from what I've read, as as you've spoken in other interviews, a person who identifies with neither yeah. gender and is attracted to women? That's yes. two major I, changes. I think of myself as a bisexual, non-binary person. Okay. So I think a lot of people are attracted to both genders. I'm not attracted to any particular gender. Okay. So that was like the first phase was coming out as as a lesbian. And I think now being able to see myself as non-binary makes a lot more sense because it helps me understand that none of those none of those sort of old labels actually really worked, whether it's straight or gay. For me, the biggest real categorization is trans instead of cis. Can you and, explain what those words even mean? Because there are going to be people, and yeah. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent clear, but I know that there are people that are even less. So yes, well, cis is somebody who identifies with the gender they were assigned at birth. So if when you came out, the doctor said this is a boy, and your whole life you've grown up feeling pretty much like a boy and like a guy, you're cis. And they say that on the basis of the genitals. Yes. They look at a penis, they go, it's a boy. They look at a vagina and they go, that's a girl. And then if that if that baby grows up to feel pretty much like a woman or a girl, they're cis, C-I-S, mm-hmm. cis woman, cis man. Then there are people who are trans. And underneath the so-called trans umbrella, there are all different kinds of people, including trans women who are identified male at birth but become female but transition to female. The other way around, identified female at birth, become male. And then there are non-binary people who actually feel like they don't want to use either label. There are intersex people who don't necessarily identify as trans. Sometimes they do. But intersex is sort of a subset of trans where people are born with ambiguous genitalia. Sometimes the parents assign a gender to the kid, which feels right. And sometimes they assign a gender, which feels wrong. Sometimes those intersex people want to choose a gender. Sometimes intersex people want to be non-binary. There are cross-dressers. There are drag queens. There are very butch lesbians. There are all kinds of people who don't identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. And 
if all of those people actually used the word trans to describe themselves, the trans movement would be much bigger and much more vigorous. But it's such a specific word right now that I don't think that everybody would necessarily, if they were under that umbrella, call themselves trans. So you call yourself trans? Only because my first realization was not cis. So what's the opposite? Yes. Yeah. And just to further what, what we're talking about, this was, I guess, last month you had there was a profile of you in The Guardian, and they uh, afterwards, I think the reporter was seeking a clarification. You emailed, quote, I identify as trans, which means that I'm not seeking to synthesize my appearance with the label assigned to me at birth, and instead I'm opting to live in a space where a label other than male or female is used to define me. So what I'm just kind of curious about, because, you know, what somebody comes out as gay or lesbian mm-hmm. or whatever these days, my assumption was that they just, they were born that way and they were not able or willing to acknowledge that until right. whenever that was. But you were married to a man mm-hmm. and in only the last three years, all of this, and maybe not even but that long. a lot long, of people who are gay were married. Right. Yeah. Were you trans all along? I think so, Yes. But I think the definition of trans is going to evolve so much year to year that like three years from now, even this conversation will be so much more no, clear. I'm sure, I, well, yeah. I'm sure I'll sound crazy. No, because it just keeps changing. Yeah. And so like the fact that as people identify as non-binary, which I think is a very common feeling for young people. And, you know, I know so many people who are under the age of 20 who identify as non-binary under the age of 25. I think one in four people in middle school right now identifies as non-binary. It's an incredibly common thing for younger people. And if you ask this question of them, were you born trans? You know, it's it's a way of kind of heightening the non-binary identification to use the language of like the trans identification and insist on a kind of equalization, which people may not be ready to express. For me, I'm able to just say I'm non-binary. I guess that means I'm trans. Okay, fine, I'll use the trans label because I'm lucky enough to have the privilege of having a good job and having a life that I'm not worried about being, you know, that my life is, that things will go wrong because of this identification. I feel so lucky that I can be a little whimsical and frivolous as I try to find my way to something that feels authentic. But the best way to sort of explain it is that I've been really like sort of vigorously thinking about feminism and women for many, many years. And there are a lot of things that felt to me like just this anger and trouble that I had about all the ways in which I was expected to perform femininity and it never felt comfortable. So I would have to get dressed up. This is something a lot of women feel, Mm -hmm. getting dressed up, wearing high heels, putting on a bunch of makeup, giving a huge shit about a wedding dress. You know, all of these things that they say women do, right. like never. I, I, Not only did I not associate with those things, I was, was furious that I was expected to. Always. Always. What finally motivated you to act upon this? I think realizing that my parent is trans made me feel, and my sister's kind of now identifying as genderqueer. And so, yes, I was like, this is my legacy. I have a genetic legacy. If my parent is trans, if my parents' relationship to their gender has always felt fraught, this is maybe why my relationship to my gender has always felt fraught. So as I started to discard a lot of those things that were expected of me because I was a woman, whatever they may be, not only the looks thing, you know, which I think is like the hair and the makeup and that you have to kind of be coy and you want to be attracting and attractive 
And these things, like as I start to discard them as a matter of course, small things in my life, saying, for example, I do not need hair and makeup for this meeting. You know, I, I will not be wearing a dress to the Emmys. Right. These little things where you kind of find yourself in, a, in the public view and you ask yourself, who am I? I started discarding all of these things because they made me uncomfortable. And the more I discarded them, the more powerful I felt in my real life. But that could have happened at any particular time in your adulthood or even before. What Was there something about the, the reception of Transparent Oh. That made you say, I'm now more comfortable with my own feelings. I think I think it's, I mean, no, it, it certainly helps, you know, because the world is a more open place. And I spend so much time around non-binary people at work where I see, I see other people who are non-binary and I look at them and I think, I want to be like you. I see myself in you. But to me, it's more about the years and years and years and years and years of secrecy through which I viewed, you know, my childhood, this lens of secrecy where there was kind of confusion. My parent was, wasn't themselves. She was kind of in hiding, in disguise as a man. As children in this household, we had to be in conflict with a feeling of secrecy and shame around femininity. So all that stuff, I think, created like a stew of confusion for me that ended up feeling day-to-day like rage, dread, anger, and that's dissipated because you can now... I can just, yeah, I can. I, I still have some anger, <laughs> green tea. It's probably uh, uh, healthy, right? Yeah, I just feel like a little relieved of all of those things, you know, to take those, have those, those expectations off of me. Another thing you said that I thought was interesting, quote, a lot of it is, I think, success, where you go, okay, I have success, I have a TV show, I won an award, I have everything people, you know, I have everything I thought I wanted, why am I still not happy, yeah. close quote. That was interesting because... Yeah. Now, when you shared this news with your family, you had had this conversation with your MAPA. Yes. We've discussed how that went on the phone and yeah. how bewildering that kind of probably was. Yeah. Did you find that generationally your kids received this information any differently than you had? You know, I think it's, again, kind of iterative. Like, it's it's in process right now, you know, and my younger child is a little bit young to really understand the nuances of it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I think... I think he said to me the other day, I've been noticing you've been dressing like a boy lately. You know? Oh, really? How old yeah. is... He's eight. Oh, eight, okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> is it cool with you? Yeah, it's great with me. I like it. Cool, you know. <laughs> and my older son, you know, yeah. he, he's 20, so he, I think he finds all of the they pronouns just straight up annoying. Because when um, you say they pronouns, rather than... So he or she would not be welcome by you anymore it totally is i don't i don't get upset with people no but it's not preferred here's why the they thing is so great right because for me when i spent time around people who use the they pronoun there's a intersex activist in chicago named pigeon pagonis and they're one of my like spirit animal people who i just love who they are just doing so much for the non-binary community and when they were here visiting I really felt that kind of enjoyment of spending time around somebody where I wasn't gendering them as either male or female. So when you spend time with women, you automatically go, oh, it's girls' night, or the women are doing this, or girls do this. And you spend time with men, and you're like, men do this. Men tease each other more, or men, you know. And to spend time with people who are non-binary, you force yourself out of your comfort zone because you can't do the usual, and you literally have to just relate to them as a human being, it forces people to have the human relation because you're not going, well, she's kind of this for a girl or they're kind of that for a boy. It's like if you take away these genders, 
you're left with just the person. How do you even know, though, if somebody's gender non-binary? I mean, you don't unless they tell you. So the like if you were to somehow meet you on the street, yeah, how would you greet yourself? Well, you don't have to use gendered pronouns when you meet people. Okay, that's true. So, but just if if there just, was a you know, like a friend of mine came over earlier, right. and she was talking to me and my friend who were here, and she was like, "Well, nice to see you, ladies," and I was like, "I don't use that anymore," right. you know, and she's like, "Oh, sorry," and I'm like, "It's all good," you know. Do you find that there? I mean, there's still obviously a lot of people that have not knowingly met somebody who's gender yeah. non-binary. When you lay this out to somebody who is not, yeah, been, has not been exposed to it, yeah. What's the spectrum yeah, of reactions? I, mean, I, I don't really make a big deal out of it yeah, because yeah. if I'm going to a restaurant, it's a host. I don't want to hassle them. Right. You know, if it's a waitress. I mean, it happens a lot in the service world where people gender people and they go right this way, ladies. Right. They say ma'am. It doesn't really happen. People don't really, you know, your friends don't have a huge need to gender right, you. Right, right, right. It, people don't say, come on, girls. Like, you know, it's not really an issue. It's, it's mostly with strangers. And so, yeah, I don't want to bother them. Sure. Just to wrap up the transparent aspect of this conversation, if I can ask you, what did your mapa make? What ha- what has she made of the show? Yeah. And also now of your own evolution that we've been talking about. Yeah. The, my parents are both pretty m- mellow about the non-binary thing. They don't really, nobody really experiences that as a huge coming out. But did she even see it coming at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, as I said, Faith kind of identifies as genderqueer. Faith and I, way back when, we were going to do a talent show called the Soloway Brothers. You know, there's always been, I think, an amount of gender kind of fluidity and play in our family's own self-conception. So it's not that's not Nothing like a bombshell. Genre, right. No. But yeah, I think having the transparent around the world and having the character of Mora has been really wonderful for my parent just because they're being seen in Chicago now, you know, as who they are and, you know, a little kind of mini local celebrity. That's great. Okay. So I love Dick. Yes. Where did that first, because there's obviously a lot of interweaving of what that's about with what we're talking about. How did it cross your radar and what was the driving reason for doing this? Was it just a fitting vehicle to explore these ideas that you obviously want to explore or yeah, no it just kind of happened i mean sarah gubbins is a fantastic playwright she found an article about this book called i love dick in the new yorker we both read it i was sort of supposed to be on a break from transparent and instead sarah and i just kind of got going and started writing sarah wrote the pilot we were able to have the script done pretty quickly and amazon had like a, a hole in their programming moment like they were going to make another pilot the script wasn't ready and they said is there any way you guys want to make the dick pilot like right away and so we did. It was right after season three of Transparent. We went straight into it. So it all came together pretty quickly. Yeah. Was this always going to star Catherine Hahn? Are you looking for something else to do with her? Yeah, yeah. From the beginning, as soon as uh, Sarah and I had the idea, we definitely thought Catherine Hahn would be the perfect person to play Chris. And why Kevin Bacon? You know, there's something about the six degrees of Kevin Bacon and the <laughs> enigma of who it, who is Dick and who is Bacon that it seemed like he was just the right person. It all fell together. Every episode i believe as i think back has a some form of a reference to a female filmmaker right often experimental or whatever certainly the fifth episode yeah what's that about is this almost like an homage to people who were overlooked in their own time yeah i think that's a good way of thinking about it we definitely wanted to 
explore whether there is such thing as the female gaze. And we wanted to make sure we yeah, paid homage to all the women who had been attempting to have their voices heard over the years and hadn't really had the chance to. And it felt really cool to be able to use the show as a holder for other people's work. And yeah, episode five in particular is called A Short History of Weird Girls. And that to me felt like I was taking a break not a break, but I was pushing myself beyond what I had already figured out as a director and attempting some new techniques to see, you know, how far I could push myself in terms of what I knew. Which we should note, this critic in the New York Times just called the, quote, the best 20 minutes of television I've seen in years, close quote. I yeah, know, I'm sure you... I'll so take I, that. Yeah, and and great writers involved with that one as well. Annie Baker, who people are getting to know more about, and Heidi Schreck, and then you directed that one and episode one. Yeah. You made a decision, it looks like, to have women or non... Gender non-conforming. Gender non-conforming. Just think GNC, like the vitamin store. GNC, right. All your writers and all your directors fit that? All our writers and most of our directors. Jim Frona, who is our cinematographer on Transparent, has directed episodes of Transparent and episodes of I Love Dick. Other than that, everybody else is female or gender non-conforming. And what's the what's the thought process behind that? Because this this is... I, I get with Transparent why it obviously makes sense to have trans people in the writer's room or whatever, but why, and I'm not doubting that it does, but what is it about having a predominantly female or GNC people that makes the show better? Yeah, well, we just thought that we didn't know if it had ever been done before in all women's writer's room, and we felt like because the show is exploring the female gaze, that we wanted to make sure that whatever was conceived in the writer's room felt protected by not having some of the traditional notions of like what was appropriate or what was considered like a great story or what would be commercial. And I think a lot of people with experience or a lot of maybe cis male writers with experience would be bringing a sense into the room of like kind of controlling the wildness of whatever feminist creativity was exploding and we just wanted to let it explode and that even extends as far as the way you go about things on the set i was hearing you know many people particularly for just for forever people have said action or cut oh yeah you do not yeah we try not to say it sometimes you know if there's a small scene and you're in a hurry you can say action and cut just to be like to get things going but if we're doing a really you know emotional scene an intense scene that has a lot of drama in it we try to actually we'll sort of take the actors we'll set them in the setting you know go in the kitchen hang out in the kitchen think about the past 10 years that you lived in this house this is your kitchen where are the spoons just move around like you know it and then while they're moving around then i'll go get jimmy or whoever's you know operating and tap them on the shoulder and they'll just kind of move into the room and the actors will already be in it and we just kind of try to stay in the flow we find that yelling action is a flow interrupter and another thing you're not going to see on too many other sets, what is doing box? Box. Well, box is, look, we all stand in a circle in the morning before we start our day, and we just sort of talk about how we're doing. People share from their lives. This is everybody that's on the set? Yeah, the whole crew, all the actors, all the background artists, big old gang, anywhere between, you know, 50 and 100 people, and people take turns getting on an Apple box and talking and you know, it's a way of sort of like effectively wasting time together, you know, because there's this feeling on most sets, like we're running out of time, we're running out of money, we're running out of light. And by stopping that clock and saying, okay, we have plenty of time. We're here in gratitude. Let's just connect with each other. What do people need to say? It creates a feeling of connection through all of the people on the crew so that everybody actually feels very kind of, everybody's connected. And we create this matrix of 
positive energy that actually makes the day go better and faster because everybody kind of cares about each other. That's amazing. So last thing is just what we call a little bit of rapid fire. It's not exactly like the, okay. but just your general reaction to a okay. couple things. What shows other than your own do the best job of portraying the world as you try to? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, there's something about the Great British Bake Off that feels <laughs> similarly safe and loving, like just kind of like a yummy place to hang out. You know, I love girls. I feel like everything she's doing is something I want to be doing. I love the way she writes and who her characters are. I love Louis C.K. I think what Donald Glover is doing with Atlanta, what Issa Rae is doing, you know, anytime that somebody is taking a voice that hasn't normally been heard and getting it out there, I feel like they're changing the world. Did the 2016 presidential election results at all change the way that you go about your work or the new work that you create? Yeah, I think seeing Donald Trump in office was so shocking. And and I think it made me feel a lot less shame, not only about my urge to create, you know, power for women and people of color and queer people, but to just be less embarrassed about my own wish to have power. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Trump is so embarrassing. It's like, I I guess I could be a little more embarrassing. You know, (laughs) we don't have to be we don't have to be good. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be well behaved. We can be loud. We can try to overthrow. We can try to topple, you know, like Well, that's exactly where the next one is. So yeah. what you your Twitter bio, your Emmy acceptance speech, you say topple the patriarchy. Yeah. Some men hear that and they think this woman's coming coming after coming me. For she, me. Or this excuse me, not Yeah, this person's not, coming This for person's me. coming out. Why are they wrong to feel that that what does that actually mean? Well, it just means, you know, that war is awful and it shouldn't be happening and I think, you know, one of the agreements of patriarchy is that there should be a military and people should be murdered. Another agreement of patriarchy is that, you know, people of color should be kept in prison. And, you know, there are awful things that happen because of patriarchy and colonialism and white supremacy. And, and you know, these are not the words in the most academic extreme form. It's just the simple truth of a lot of white men in charge of most things. And when a lot of white men are in charge of most things, women and people of color and queer people feel like they have no power. So yeah, that's all it means is that for white men, for cis men, for straight men who do have access in the industry, it means as the as the moments occur in your life where you see that there's a job opening, look for a woman, look for a person of color, look for a queer person to bring you know, to bring them in, to to just notice if you look around on your right on your writing staff and everybody's a white guy, to notice if you look around your office. Like that's all. It doesn't mean, you know, that we're coming for you, but it just means... <laughs> Pitchforks. Yeah. No, right. we're just asking, you know, for awareness. We live in an interesting, like, you know, I think you've said in other interviews, we live in a bubble here in LA to yeah. some extent. Moving forward and trying to advance the cause of trans people, what is the most effective way? Because there's an art, there's a school of thought from people who I think share the same underlying hopes that you do for how society may evolve, who say... If we get baited by the right or conservatives or whatever into conversations around election time where it becomes about trans bathrooms mm-hmm. and things which they certainly, Fox News ran with that. Yeah. Does it actually drive more people who are opposed to, who will, does it impassion people who want to stop this as much as, and maybe more so than people who are trying to, get to a more enlightened place. Well, it's just civil rights. You know, when you say people who want to stop this, you're saying people who are against equal rights. So, you know, to ask the question of like, should trans people be more quiet because they're going to enrage, you know, the right? It's like, should Jews not exist because they're going to enrage Nazis? (laughs) Should, you know, 
It's like if there is a fascist mentality that's happening in our country, we definitely have to think hard about how to help break that open. And and by fascist, I, again, I just mean that white people or people of a certain class believe that their race protects them from something, you know, and that their whiteness or their maleness or their class protects them from something. And so for me, when I see them using something like, you know, they call like the bathroom issue, like mm-hmm. a boutique issue, it's like it's not a, a it's not about bathrooms and it's not about boutiques. It's about human rights. It's the same as a black person using a water fountain. You know, black people sitting at the lunch counter yep. back in the 60s had nothing to do with food. It was about human rights. And this has nothing to do with bathrooms. It's about human rights. And, you know, I think what what happens, what is starting to happen as people are attempting to create a solidarity movement and ask, what ha- you know, how do women and people of color and queer people and trans people come together to fight against this common enemy? You know, I do believe that the idea of tolerance can be rebranded as love and it can exist, coexist with people who think of themselves as religious and think of themselves as spiritual. And so I don't really believe that the right is filled with hate and that the left is filled with tolerance. I believe that people on the right probably just don't know a lot of trans people. And so they don't think of those people as people. And the more people become educated and they recognize that, you know, a human rights movement is consistent with the spiritual practice of love, I do believe, actually, that there can be a movement towards the empowerment of all people. Lastly, you've won the last two oh, Best yeah. Director in a Comedy Emmys. You've certainly advanced, you know, these these topics that we're talking about in a way that had never happened before. What is left on your bucket list obviously bucket there's list. a long time here but is there anything specific well that... all this stuff that we were just talking about yeah. in terms of a movement yeah. and in terms of trying to figure out how you can empower all of the different identity politics groups without having people feel erased you know i think this is the conversation people ask is like if you're going to identify as a lesbian does that make you unable to connect to the feelings of people of color who have a different struggle and intersectionality intersectionality asks like well what if you're both how does class intersect so i think we're all just learning as a culture and for me being able to do some of that stuff i talked about with that college interview application take these complicated ideas and make them simple for a large group of people to understand i really want to be able to do that with you know with the power movement Thank you so much. I've learned a lot, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.